Hi, everyone. I'm Joan Obra. And I'm Ralph Gaston. And we're your hosts of Catch Me Up to Speed, a podcast that helps you deconstruct the news like a journalist. As former reporters, we kept fielding questions about the news from family and friends. Questions like, what's real? What's fake? What's important? And what's noise? To help you answer these questions for yourselves, we launched this podcast with tips for studying the news in 2020. Well, we're in our second season, and as we mentioned in our last episode, we're taking our analysis to a deeper level. The topic we're tackling this time around is so deep that we're splitting it into two episodes. This one is about the U.S. Supreme Court, while the next episode is about the U.S. Constitution. And why are we tackling these two now? Because in 2023, the Supreme Court could accelerate the movement to a constitutional convention, meaning a wholesale rewriting of our Constitution. And we want you to be informed now, because this giant change is being driven by dark money. The earlier you know what's going on, the better chance you have of taking part in this important process, as opposed to simply letting a small group of people rewrite the Constitution for the rest of us. Right. You know, we can't get what's coming next without understanding the Supreme Court. And the media coverage of the 2022 Supreme Court rulings has not really done a good job of giving us the bird's eye view. As we've mentioned before, once you're in the news of the moment, the stories progress really quickly. And you add the layers of opinions on top of the news, and it gets really easy to get lost in the land of confusion. So here's what we're going to do for you guys. We're going to catch you up to speed on the workings of the Supreme Court. And as you'll soon discover, Joan and I are more concerned with something that's not talked about enough. No one gave the Supreme Court the right to be the arbiter of our Constitution. It was a power that, frankly, the court grabbed for itself in the early 19th century. And we've been dealing with the consequences ever since. You know, guys, when we mention this... Most people's reactions are like, wait a minute, what? (laughs) Many don't know that neither Congress nor the Constitution itself gave the Supreme Court this degree of power. And, you know, these are folks who read the news regularly. So that's how Ralph and I can tell that the media is not hammering this point home. And it's a shame because the torrent of news coverage about the 2022 rulings brought many opportunities to do so. So here's a recap of the major cases. In National Federation of Independent Business versus Department of Labor, SCOTUS declared that Biden's vaccine or testing mandate for large private employers was unconstitutional. In New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, the court ruled that states with strict limits on carrying guns in public violates the Second Amendment. And that's a big deal in states with strong gun control, you know, like Hawaii, where we live. Yeah, that was a really big one. And so were a couple of others that eroded long-standing boundaries between church and state. For instance, Kennedy versus Bremerton ruled in favor of a football coach's free speech rights at a public high school. The result? He was allowed to hold a group prayer on the field after a football game. In Carson versus Macon, SCOTUS ruled that a Maine program could not exclude religious schools from a state tuition program, and that doing so was a violation of the free exercise of religion. That is what the court's majority said. Another case with lots of impact was West Virginia versus the Environmental Protection Agency. 
SCOTUS limited the EPA's ability to regulate the energy sector because the agency did not have explicit authority from Congress to regulate greenhouse gases. So in late August, Congress stepped in with a law, the Inflation Reduction Act. The IRA confirmed that carbon dioxide emissions are air pollution and thus regulated by the Clean Air Act. And we can't forget about Dobbs versus Jackson. This case effectively ended the constitutional right to an abortion, which had been established by Roe v. Wade in 1973. We're going to talk about Dobbs in a future episode, so for now, let's just say this. It generates a giant share of the news stories about SCOTUS's decisions this term. So to sum it up, what we witnessed was this dramatic conservative shift to the court. Certainly more conservative than our parents have seen in their lifetimes, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and our parents are in their 60s and 70s. So here's where we come back to what Ralph and I brought up earlier about the Supreme Court. Why does it interpret the constitutionality of our laws? As Ralph said earlier, this was a power that the court grabbed for itself in the early 19th century. It is civics time, ladies and gentlemen. So, if you remember your basic civics... The three branches of government have distinct roles. The legislative branch makes the laws. The executive branch enforces laws. And the judicial branch interprets laws. Now, Article 3 of the Constitution sets out the powers of the judicial branch. And it says, The judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court and in such inferior courts as the Congress may, from time to time, ordain and establish. And Congress did just that with the Judiciary Act of 1789. That's how they established the federal court system. So Section 2 of Article 3 establishes what the Supreme Court has jurisdiction over, meaning when it is allowed to hear a case. Well, if one state sues another, that case goes right to the Supreme Court. Or if a case involves ambassadors or other federal public ministers, that case would also go right to the Supreme Court. These are instances of what they would call original jurisdiction. But most of what we see in action is appellate jurisdiction, which means the Supreme Court gets cases that have been appealed from lower courts. Now, these cases that are appealed have to have something to do with the Constitution or federal laws. You can get more details on this at uscourts.gov, and we'll provide a link for that as well. Okay, Ralph. But, you know, after looking at the text of the Constitution, it doesn't say anything about the power to determine the constitutionality of legislative acts or executive actions. Meaning, you know, in other words, nothing in there allows for what is called, quote unquote, judicial review. Mm -hmm. So can you explain to everyone where that comes from? Yes. And this is, once again, going back to your middle school history class. Do you remember learning about a case named Marbury versus Madison? It turns out, it was way more important than you may have thought back in the eighth grade. So this case was centered around a man named William Marbury, who was appointed to a federal judgeship by the outgoing president at the time, our second president, John Adams. So this is early in 1801. Why did Adams do this just before departing his office? Well, what he wanted to do was stock the judiciary with people from his political party, the Federalists so that the new president, Thomas Jefferson, could not fill those seats with people from his party, Jefferson's party being the Democratic-Republicans. 
All right, you guys. So let's back up a little bit and talk about the two political parties at the time. John Adams, as Ralph said, was part of the Federalist Party, which believed in a strong centralized federal government and an economy powered by international trade. Thomas Jefferson led the Democratic Republicans. That's Democratic hyphen Republicans, right? So this is referring to a single party. (laughs) They believed in stronger state governments and an agrarian economy. In other words, with foundations in the new nation's agricultural base. So now that we've got that straight, let's get back to Marbury versus Madison. No problem. See, the issue here was Mr. Marbury did not receive his commission until the night before the change of office. So when Jefferson assumed the presidency, he told his secretary of state, James Madison, to withhold Marbury's appointment. And as you can imagine, Marbury took legal action to get his appointment approved. He wanted that office. Jefferson's administration, of course, resisted. And finally, the Supreme Court took up the case two years later. So this case, which, you know, on the level is a pretty minor dispute, was a vehicle for the first chief justice, John Marshall, to advance his own judicial theory, which is known as judicial review. Judicial review essentially declares that the Supreme Court, as head of the judicial branch of government, would have final say on interpreting the Constitution and deciding if laws or acts or actions were in violation of the Constitution. Now, remember, once again, the Constitution itself does not say this. And there was a resistance to this decision. Jefferson himself was unhappy about the ruling. He felt that lifetime appointees that were not voted on by the public should not have that level of influence. And, you know, I got to say he had a point. Right? (laughs) Okay, guys. So do you understand now why Ralph and I think that this discussion over judicial review would have been a really useful news narrative during news coverage in June and actually a bit earlier than that, right? Mm -hmm. So instead... The media coverage largely continued the debates over originalism, textualism, and living constitution that we've seen in past years. Now, all of these terms that I just said uphold the Supreme Court's role in interpreting our law's constitutionality, and they're just different theories of how to do so. So let's give you a simplified version of what these terms mean and why they matter to all of us, especially next year when SCOTUS is expected to decide cases that affect voting rights, federal elections in every state, affirmative action, discrimination against those who identify as LGBTQ+, and more. We'll begin with the Living Constitution School of Thought. It's the view that the U.S. Constitution is a dynamic document meaning the Constitution evolves and adapts to new circumstances even if the document itself is not formally amended. Under this theory, the interpretation of the Constitution can develop alongside the society it governs. Critics say this was the Warren Court's philosophy during the Civil Rights Movement and that it pushed the boundaries of judicial review. So here's a quick history lesson. Earl Warren was Chief Justice of the Supreme Court from 1953 to 1969. You guys remember Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, which declared racial segregation in schools unconstitutional? Yes. And the Warren Court also brought us Loving versus Virginia, which ended state bans on interracial marriage in 1967. 
And because of that case, Ralph and I are legally recognized as a married couple across the United States today. So the Warren Court also expanded our right to privacy. In 1965, its ruling in Griswold versus Connecticut stopped state interference with married couples' rights to contraception. And here's what's important about this case. The majority of the justices took a looser interpretation of the constitutional amendments to find that married couples had a right to privacy. Two of the dissenters favored a stricter interpretation of the Constitution, saying that a right to privacy could not be inferred from the Constitution. And after the Warren Court, a conservative movement arose to bring SCOTUS back to these stricter interpretations of the Constitution. We discussed in episode 13 how the Federalist Society was formed in 1982 to help push conservative judges into the SCOTUS pipeline. Think Samuel Alito, Clarence Thomas, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett, all on the current court, right? So you can go back and listen to episode 13 for more about this movement. Let's also go back in time to 2008, when journalist Charlie Rose interviewed now-deceased Judge Antonin Scalia about his legacy on the Supreme Court. What do you hope will be your legacy from your time on the Supreme Court? How do you hope you will have changed this great institution? Well, I, I, I don't think any one person is going to change it. Uh, um, but if I make a contribution, I, I, I hope it will be in, in recalling the, uh, the court to the manner of uh, constitutional interpretation that used to be orthodoxy, which is, you know, what did the, what did the Constitution mean when it was adopted? That has sort of uh, fallen into disuse and been replaced with this notion of a you know, morphing constitution. That, uh, Some say a living constitution. A words that you adore. I do indeed. So this leads us to a discussion of originalism and textualism, which are built on stricter interpretations of the constitution. In the current SCOTUS, the conservative judges fall into these schools of thought. Let's start with originalism. Now, this is a school of thought that believes that everything should be interpreted from the standpoint of those who wrote the Constitution in 1787 or at the time that any of the amendments were written. When it was written, whoever wrote it, what they believed at that time, that's all that matters. It sticks to the intent of the Constitution's authors or the original meaning of the document at the time it was published, or a combination of both. Now, it's important to remember who had a say in these original rules. The original drafters of the Constitution were all white men. To be more specific, they were all white men of property. Black people were not part of the writing process, nor were women, nor were natives of the land before the creation of the United States. And then there's textualism. Textualists typically don't take into account the intent of the Constitution's authors or other historical factors. Rather, they consider the common understanding of the text itself most important. You guys, keep in mind that these are classic definitions of originalism and textualism. But the decisions made by judges who favor these schools of thought, well, they do not always stick to these stated principles. And this shows up very clearly in cases that deal with the Second Amendment. And just to make sure that we're precise, I'm going to go ahead and read the entire Second Amendment text right now. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, 
The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. That's the Second Amendment. Seems simple enough, but in the D.C. versus Heller decision from 2008, a 5-4 to majority decided that the Second Amendment guaranteed an individual a right to possess firearms even for purposes other than being in the militia, which is not in the text of the Second Amendment. And that decision was compounded by the ruling this June on New York State and Rifle versus Bruin, which further interpreted the Second Amendment as granting a citizen rights to concealed carry firearms. Again, that's not in the text. Now, Ellie Mistal, who writes for The Nation and also wrote a book about the courts and the Constitution called Allow Me to Retort, spoke about this in a June appearance on MSNBC. It's one thing for the conservatives in 2008 and Heller to create whole cloth a right to own a firearm for, for self-defense. That had never been done before in American history. Conservatives did it in the 2008. Okay. But now they're saying that you have an, an, uh, a constitutional right. Every state has to be Texas now in the Constitution. And that's, it's, it's not in the Constitution. They are just wrong. I hope you guys can see that what we're really talking about here is the power struggle over what kind of society the United States should have, and how some Supreme Courts have used judicial review in that fight. In the examples we've discussed today, we've seen large-scale changes pushed by the Warren Court of the 1950s and 60s, as well as today's court led by Chief Justice John Roberts. Now sometimes, that central struggle is hidden behind the media debates over originalism, textualism, and the living constitution. And here's where I'm going to give Ralph the floor to vent for a minute, because he gets really annoyed, you guys, at the way these debates play out. Because the pundits and analysts often get caught in the weeds and the minutiae between originalism and textualism, and they leave the public more confused than ever. Yeah, I, you know, I swear some of these pundits and analysts spend more time trying to sound good for the justices they're interviewing or for their peers instead of remembering that all of the public is their audience. It's almost like it's their intention to talk over most people's heads. Again, we had some consequential SCOTUS decisions this year. The NRA case, the Dobbs case, I mean, these rulings affect our lives. So it's one thing to have a debate at a law school about originalism, but another thing entirely to have Justice Clarence Thomas say that the Supreme Court should reconsider all of this court's substantive due process precedents, including Griswold, Lawrence, and Obergefell. Again, Justice Thomas, a proud originalist, is essentially asking the lower courts to send up cases that would allow the Supreme Court to reconsider the right to privacy, protection of fundamental rights from government interference, and equal protection under the law. Now, the lower courts have not done so yet, so this type of sweeping review is not on the docket for next year. And finally, there is a Supreme Court justice who has tried to reject the labels and the restrictions of originalism, textualism, and the living constitution. Check out what Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor said in an interview with 60 Minutes back in 2013. And so to talk about strict interpretation or living constitution, those are not words I use. And they're not words that I think have much meaning because what you are doing is interpreting new facts to an established law that in part has been given meaning and precedent 
and that in part has a historical background, and you're drawing from all of that toolbox of precedence, history, some of my colleagues don't rely on history, but others do, um, and from statutory construction principles, it is not about reading words strictly or about living constitution. It's about giving meaning on the basis of facts that are presented to you. All right, you guys. There's a key reason why we've given you all this overview. We're asking you to start considering whether we should keep judicial review as it is now, and if so, what's the best way for the Supreme Court to wield this power? These are fundamental questions for the next episode in this two-part series, which, as we mentioned earlier, is all about our Constitution. The next time we meet, we'll dive into the upcoming Supreme Court case, Moore v. Harper. Depending on how this case is decided, it could give state legislatures unilateral power over how federal elections are run in their states, with no legal oversight from the executive or judicial branches of their state governments. And this would validate what's become known as the quote-unquote independent state legislature theory. This case alone could have a profound impact on election law, but even more consequential are groups who are trying to use state legislatures to launch a new constitutional convention, which would mean amendments to the Constitution itself. And that would open the door to a whole host of changes that many people aren't even aware of. Yeah, you know, the New York Times just had an article about this, and we're going to post that link in the show notes. But the key takeaway here? Well, just like the changes to the courts brought on by the Federalist Society, some of these constitutional convention movements have been at work for longer than you know, have more financial backing than you may be aware of, and have more momentum than you might think. And that's going to be the subject of our next episode. And you guys, that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned for the second part of the series where we go right into the Constitution and what a full reimagining could mean for all of us. If you have a question about this episode or any of our past episodes, please let us know. Drop us a line at hello at catchmeuptospeed.com and tell us something like, hey, Ralph and Joan, can you catch me up to speed on A, B, or C? And please like and subscribe to the podcast, which you can now find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more of your favorite platforms. And remember to give us a follow, leave a comment, leave a review. We really want to hear from you. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at CatchMeUp2Speed. As always, you guys, thanks for spending time with us today. Talk to you again soon. Hey.